city heart be flooded with stuttering sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town we breathe. Welcome y'all to Working Class Heroes Radio. My name is Mel Gonzalez, and I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And my name is Khadija Mutter, your other host for tonight. So thanks so much for joining us tonight. Today we'll be speaking with Aaron Petkoff, a software engineer, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and a volunteer with the Tech Worker Coalition. We'll be talking to him about the role of the tech industry in the U.S., efforts that tech workers are making to unionize and organize their workforce, and what this growing movement can look like under the new Biden administration. But before the interview, we'll also be discussing how the rollout of the COVID vaccine has looked like here in New York City with community physician Chand Ori. We also want to hear from you listeners on what your experiences with the vaccine rollout has been thus far. What have been some of your concerns? So in a few minutes, give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We'll start the show with headlines from this week. But first, we want to recognize that the show is made here in New York City on land that was stolen from and still rightfully belongs to the Lenape people. We stand in solidarity with all Indigenous peoples in their struggle for liberation, and we call on our listeners to do so as well. Now, on to our roundup of headlines for this week. On Tuesday, President Biden signed an executive order that will phase out the use of private prisons at the federal level as part of his administration's effort to address racial inequality, specifically mass incarceration. In 2016, President Obama signed a similar order meant to decrease the use of privately run facilities. That order was reversed in 2017 by the Trump administration, which reinstated and ramped up the use of private prisons. Today, there are 14,000 people who are incarcerated in privately run federal facilities. However, federal prisons account for only 10% of the prison population in the U.S. According to Time Magazine, Biden's executive order will affect only 11 privately run federal prisons contracted by the Department of Justice and will not mean the release of anyone currently held there. Instead, these private facilities will continue to stay open until their current contracts end without renewal. Biden's order will also leave intact the ability for states to contract facilities run by private corporations such as the Geo Group and CoreCivic, two of the largest private prison corporations. Immigrant advocates warn that Biden's executive order does not address the use of private prisons for immigration customs enforcement, which holds at least 56,000 people in detention on any given day and has continued to expand in cities across the country. In related news, although President Biden signed an executive order last week to halt deportations by ICE for 100 days, immigrant advocates report that ICE is continuing to fly people out of the country due to a couple of loopholes in the executive order that we covered last week. In addition, this Tuesday, a federal judge blocked the pause on deportations, citing Biden's administration's failure to provide any, quote, concrete, reasonable justification for a 100-day pause on deportations. Following up on news we discussed last week, this Friday, ICE attempted to quietly deport Javier Castillo a second time after his deportation was stopped last week thanks to public pressure. His families and supporters from various groups, including Unlocal, quickly mobilized rallies on Thursday and Friday evening to demand that his deportation be stopped. As a result, Javier was taken off the flight list at the last minute on Friday morning. However, ICE deported at least a dozen others who were on that flight and whose deportations could not be stopped. 
Now that Biden's moratorium on deportations has been blocked by a federal judge, many fear that ICE will expedite the removal proceedings of thousands of others. In local news, Streets Blog NYC reports that as many as 26 cyclists were killed in traffic-related violence last year. More than 14 of those who perished were low-income essential food workers delivering food to New Yorkers during the pandemic in low-income neighborhoods. Community organizations such as Transportation Alternatives point to the lack of road and street maintenance, the lack of protected bike lanes, and the fact that workers are rarely guaranteed a minimum wage and have to work for tips as the main cause for these deaths. On January 23rd, Bronx residents and delivery workers organized a vigil at the intersection of 180th Street and Grand Concourse, where 37-year-old delivery worker Victorio Hilario Guzman was killed in a hit-and-run. His brother, Elias Guzman, said at the vigil that the city and the NYPD is not doing enough to protect essential workers on the road or bring justice to his brother and other delivery workers. If you want to hear more about the experiences of delivery workers during the pandemic, check out our show from November 16th on our website, wchradio.org. Following on the topic of essential workers, on January 26th, nearly 100 immigrant workers and their supporters rallied in Union Square to bring attention to the lack of relief for undocumented people during the pandemic. The nonprofit organization, New Immigrant Community Empowerment, organized the action because they say in talking with immigrant and undocumented New Yorkers, a common phrase they heard was that they were, quote unquote, left to die. Here's a short clip from the action. In the clip, protesters are singing, we deserve to come out from the shadow. We don't want to die in the shadow because we're beings of light. Our hands are tied in the middle of this pandemic. We have not received any relief and we've been left to die. We will continue paying taxes. We will continue working hard, building a new world with rights for immigrants. The rally at Union Square turned into a march that ended in Times Square. While most marchers held a white cross with the names of loved ones lost to the virus, a few marchers held up placards with pictures of Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, and U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, each of them marked with an F for failing to provide relief for the immigrant and undocumented community. That's it for headlines for this week. We will be back after this music break to talk about the vaccine rollout in New York City with Chand Ori and to talk with Aaron Petkoff about tech worker organizing. We'll also be opening up our lines to hear what some of your concerns have been about the vaccine. 
Give us a call at 212-209-2877. Tú nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, correr, no rendirse ni resuceder, ver, aprender cómo esponja absorbe. Nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos, para todos, todo para nosotros. Soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio. No queda más remedio Esto no es utopía Es alegre rebeldía Del baile de los que sobran De la danza de mi amiga Levantarnos para decir ya vas Ni África ni América Latina se suba Un barro con casco Con lápiz a patear el fiasco Provocar un social terremoto En este charco Welcome back, listeners. That was Somos Sur by Ana Tiju, featuring Shadia Mansour. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. So before our interview with Aaron, we want to discuss the rollout of the COVID vaccine here in New York City. And in particular, we want to discuss concerns people across the city are having with what it's looked like so far. As we've talked about before, many of our working class and communities of color have been the hardest hit by the coronavirus and yet have the least access to the vaccine and are the most fearful of getting it when available. Well, we'd love to hear from you listeners about your thoughts on these issues and what your experiences and concerns have been in terms of getting the vaccine. So feel free to give us a call at 212-209-2877 and share your thoughts with us. So to discuss the vaccine rollout, we have a special guest today. For listeners who may not know, I'm actually based in Washington, D.C. on occupied Piscataway land. The guest we have joining us today is a friend of mine who lives in this area. Our guest is Chand Ori, who describes himself as an oppressor caste South Asian living on Piscataway land since 2012. He's a community physician working to dismantle the medical industrial complex and build community care. Chand, welcome to Working Class Heroes. Thank you for having me. Chan, can you tell us a bit more about this COVID vaccine, how it was developed, um, your thoughts on it, and the rollout and the response by the communities you serve? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think I can give like a quick snapshot of how vaccines in general are developed, and like that probably helps folks understand. And like the one good thing about the vaccine here was the genetic code was available pretty early on, and mRNA. This technology has been researched for around 20 years. So once they were able to get that, um, you know, you start testing on animals, essentially, unfortunately, and then you move on to phase one testing. And that's just around 20 to 100 people. And you're simply testing safety at that point. You're just trying to make sure that things aren't going bad. And, you know, that was done. And then you would move towards what we call phase two. And phase two is essentially 100 people or so, and 
that's when you actually want to see does this vaccine work so one person gets the vaccine and then we see another person who doesn't get the vaccine and we see who gets the disease and is there any difference it's only after this that we actually move on to phase 3 trials which are the larger trials where you have thousands of people and in this case both moderna and pfizer vaccines total accumulated was around 70,000 people and more were started and they were followed for 6 uh, to 9 months and that's where the data comes from that's where we fin- finally find out that oh there was 95% people who got the vaccine didn't get the disease which is uh, which is really good you we were actually not expecting this how the honest i was surprised i cried actually uh seeing cuz normally you would expect something like 50% like something which happens with the flu and so that's kind of how it was developed so we didn't really start from scratch you know it's not like it's like an iphone you know when you get this new iphone it's not like they're starting from scratch they're updating what was already happening uh, i know that's a capitalist analogy uh, but so yeah i mean that's kind of how the vaccine was developed in this case it just happened really it, it was done very efficiently and it was not developed fast I want to make that clear. This was done efficiently. This is how we can do this on a daily basis. The only reason we won't do this on a daily basis is because most people who die from vaccine-preventable diseases are in the global south, and they're black and brown. Um, so this was done specifically for this case, and it can be done on for every other disease actually. Thank you. Um, yeah. So just to touch a little bit more on um, you know you, you described how it adversely affects um, folks in the global south and black and brown people. Um, we wanted to play a clip from an interview with Dr. Dorothy Roberts on MSNBC, where she talks about the history of medical racism that continues to inform people's relationship to the vaccine. And Chand, afterward, we'd love to hear your thoughts. But I also think it's important to emphasize that black people's suspicion of medicine is not only rooted in a past chapter of US history it's also rooted in experiences that they have today and evidence today that racism continues in medicine so we can't just i think frame this as a problem of convincing black people to trust medicine and forget about a foregone past we also have to continually work to make medicine today anti-racist and to weed out the many many practices in medicine that deny access to black patients that treat black patients differently you know some of these are embedded in medical technologies that either are based on a white standard that leave black people out uh-huh. or automatically adjust for black people as if we're a different form of human being and these are going on right now black people have this experience right now and that also has to be addressed in other words we're not just addressing a foregone chapter of us history we have to address racism yeah. in medicine now so that it deserves the trust of black so chand what do you make of what Dr. Roberts is saying here and how have you seen this play out yourself you know i know in, in new york um people are really concerned about the rollout both in terms of who gets access to the vaccine how um how essential workers are prioritized or not prioritized um and and there's a general in addition to uh, a kind of distrust about the science there's just a general distrust about um the state as an institution I'm doling out these these vaccinations and I personally know a lot of people who who feel a lot of anxiety and fear about that uh about getting the vaccine in a, in addition to kind of um a, a 
lack of knowledge or understanding about the, the specific science that you were talking about before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, like there's a lot that Dr. Narthirabhas just said, but it, it, I'm, I'm going uh, to quote something which I read in a very uh, important article, which says that anti-blackness has not distorted medical relationships in institutions so much as built them. This is from the Black Agenda Report by Gwendolyn Wallace. And again, this is not hyperbole. This is actually based in fact. I think I think what hits me when I hear that uh, the clip from Dr. Roberts is that like the Tuskegee experiment is what comes to our mind when we think about it. But that was one, and there has been much worse things which have been happening and are still happening. And Tuskegee, for example, was 40 years. Like that's not, that's a generation. You know, I saw a poster on the Tuskegee experiment in my research, and it actually said free treatment, which was a complete lie. It was actually, it was saying that come get treatment while they were injecting syphilis. And you have to like understand like, I mean, I know we all get it, but like, that's, that's just terrible. And, you know, like other stuff that, like, for example, the Eugenics Board of North Carolina stopped sterilization. And this is from Medical Apartheid by Dr. Harriet Washington. They only ceased uh, operations till 1977. And out of 8,000 people who were sterilized, 5,000 were black. Like, this is an ongoing process. And right now, as we speak, uh, the two things that really hit me was that, as Dr. Robert said, this technology, I don't know if you know, my kidney function is measured differently for black people. So if I would go in, I would get my kidney function measured. And let's say they say the number is 70, which is like a stage two kidney failure. For some reason, if I was black, they would code me as stage one kidney failure. So now my kidney function needs to get worse for it to get diagnosed. Like this is built into the system. Devita dialysis makes billions of dollars. And most people on dialysis, 30% of people on dialysis are black. Like it's like a systematic issue. So, you know, I, I, I think about it and I understand that this is rightful mistrust. I never, uh, I think the other issue with being black and brown in this country, specifically black, is you're being gaslit on a daily basis. It's everyone is saying, no, you don't need to worry. Just trust that the science is good. Meanwhile, you know, I don't know if you all know, I'm on TikTok and I get like thousands of like com- comments on my account saying that you're like the first person who's validating us. And that actually might be true for a lot of people because what we don't do is be like, yep, you are being, you know, buzzed over by the system on a daily basis by doctors again and again and again. And when will we start healing if we don't even understand and just accept that folks have been suffering and are actually still suffering right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of what hits me is like, there's the collective trauma response to deny anything good for us. Um, and then there is this, you know, the trauma response also tells us that we'll, we're just going to avoid everything. While there are actually good things which we need to understand. And I think that can only happen if we engage in community healing, for which myself as a healthcare physician have to do an active part in that. So that's what I think of when I like hear of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, one, and, and I'll give you a chance to uh, actually plug it a little bit later, but I'll add that one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I, I learned so much um, just from your TikTok, um, you know, on, on this issue, and it's horrific. Um, so I just wanted to drop a, a couple quick stats here. So according to the American Public Research Lab, Black mortality rates range from more than twice to almost four times as high as for white people. Among indigenous people, the rates are as much as three and a half times as high and are two times as high for Latinx people. Um, The death rate for predominantly black counties is six times that of predominantly white ones. Um, The range of structural class and race issues leads to people of color being the hardest hit. 
and are yet, of course, the least afforded proper health care and vaccinations. Um, and, and so I, ju- I just wanted to mention, Chand, when we were speaking a bit on this uh, the other day, you were referencing how this is not just a U.S. problem, but it's also a global issue that just happens to extend into the U.S. and our white supremacist system here. Um, can you just um, talk just briefly about the global context of this issue, particularly as it relates to this vaccine, like who is getting it, who isn't? Yeah, absolutely. I think first, and I'm going to keep it uh, short, is nine out of 10 people in oppressed countries will not get the vaccine in 2021. Uh, There is a complete hegemony. This has been happening on a daily basis. R&D budget for pharmaceutical, uh, by pharmaceuticals for vaccines has been cut down over the last 50 years. It was only 1% in 2018. That's it. That's how much they wanted to spend on vaccine development. This time, the only reason vaccines were made was because U.S. taxpayers were like, here you go, $1.8 billion, and NIH, go make the vaccine. This is the people's vaccine, let's be very clear. But guess what? Obviously, U.S., U.K., Canada, North America, the global north has just completely uh, hegemonized the vaccine. And so people will die uh, in, for example, the country where I'm from and other countries because there is complete takeover. And so that white supremacist capitalist uh, model is, is being replicated when you come to the U.S. And so you had all these hospitals, uh, CMOs and admin people standing in line right in front of uh, workers who've been working for the last nine months to get the vaccine. You have Pence getting the vaccine, right? Meanwhile, people are actually, vaccines are being thrown away uh, right now as we speak. It's one of the reasons. So yeah, that's what I think about these models being replicated in our own uh, institutions. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, there's there's been so much talk about the way that these pharmaceutical companies have been able to profiteer off of the vaccine, despite so much of the funding that they've gotten um, has come from public funding. And uh, I think one of the last things I read was about how because of the way that um, that richer com- countries have been able to purchase so much of the vaccine and the way that the, the pharmaceutical companies have copyrighted and licensed them, um, you know, other countries are not going to be able to get the vaccine until 2022, perhaps, unless they, you know, figure out some other channels. Yeah. And I mean, that's it's vaccine apartheid. Uh, it's happening on a global basis. We're seeing it in different parts. And that's kind of being replicated, right? And, you know, you can see like cities like New York City and D.C., like same disparities. People, zip codes where people are dying the most have the least vaccinations. So. Yeah. So, I mean, just to add to that, you know, you bring up um, wealthy people and wealthy rich codes getting vaccines more. On top of that, we have actually seen multiple cases in the U.S. and Canada where wealthier people who do not fall into the categories of being especially vulnerable are literally taking vaccines meant for more vulnerable population members. Um, So this past Thursday, the CEO of the startup Philly Fighting COVID admitted to taking home several vaccinations after a vaccine administration event. They literally turned away several, and, and actually I should say dozens, of elderly people who had confirmed appointments. The CEO, Andre Doroshin, was later seen getting ready to administer the vaccine off-site in a private residence. I should add, he's not even a healthcare professional. This was later found to be a gathering of his friends. He has since called this a mistake of his, but this was literally a case of someone taking life-saving drugs from the elderly and giving it to wealthy individuals who are not as much at risk. We have also seen the case of the former head of a Canadian casino, Rodney Baker, and his actress wife, Ekaterina, charter a plane from their residence to a remote indigenous village of 100 in Yukon Territory, where a mobile unit was getting ready to administer the Moderna vaccine to elderly members of the White River First Nation. 
So by traveling there, they not only put the White River First Nation and those administering the vaccine at risk, they then literally stole vaccines for those meant for some of the most vulnerable. And lastly, earlier this week, the chief fundraiser for the University of Rochester Medical Center was found to have sent an email suggesting that major donors be given special consideration for the vaccine. Um, Chand, real quick, I just wanted to ask you for your response on that. I I can tell you, <laughs> yeah, it's angering. I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, just yeah, it's a lot of people are dying, and this it doesn't need to be this. This can all be fixed. This is not the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any last thoughts? Um... Yeah, I mean, I really want to say that I know there are folks who are really uh, mistrustful and rightfully so, but really looking at it from a global context, understanding that most people who are going to be hurt from not getting the vaccine are going to be black and brown and poor people. And I understand we're fearful here, but we really need to understand what's good for us. So go and learn about it. Talk to people that are close to you. And if you can, we need to get the vaccine really quick and we need to do it together. Well, thank you so much, Chanda. You know, I think we really appreciate you coming on um, and sharing your your insight, both acknowledging where you know people's mistrust comes from and validating that fear, while also trying to clarify um, a, a lot of the misinformation that has been floating out out there. So, thanks so much for coming on. We're going to take a quick music break, but when we come back, Leah will be speaking with our guest Aaron Petkoff about tech worker organizing. They will also be taking calls, so feel free to give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, the number is 212-209-2877. Stay tuned, y'all. Dami Palestini by Muhammad Asfa. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. My name is Leah Ramirez. Happy to be here with y'all. Remember, our phone lines are open for you to call. The number is 212-209-2877. So for tonight's feature interview, we're speaking with Aaron Petkoff, a software engineer, member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and a volunteer with the Tech Worker Coalition. Aaron, welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. Thanks for speaking with us this evening. Uh, Before we jump into the interview, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about you? Are you originally from New York? Uh, Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm not originally from New York. Uh, I uh, am originally from Detroit, 
Um, I moved here, uh, I guess going on seven years ago now, which seems crazy. Time just flies. But it really, yeah, it really does. Like I, I forget I've been here as long as I've been here. Um, so that's awesome. So diving into our interview, the reason why we have you here tonight. Uh, so recently Google workers announced their plans to unionize. What is the significance in this for the industry itself? And, you know, what are the general demands besides wages that workers are organizing for? Yeah, so uh, the recent announcement of the Alphabet Workers Union, uh, which is uh, what the union for employees at Google is called, uh, I think really marks uh, a whole new phase of this growing tech labor movement. Um, You know, people have been organizing in tech, uh, you know, from as early as the 1970s when the tech industry, uh, computer and software industry, uh, was just starting to get off the ground. But more recently, organizations like the one that I volunteer for, the Tech Workers Coalition, uh, you know, has been organizing since 2015. Um, but over the last several years, you know, this movement has really grown beyond anyone's expectations. Certainly uh, my own, uh, around the time that I started to get involved uh, after um, uh, at my last job uh, where I worked at The New Yorker, I was active in the, uh, the campaign to, uh, to organize the New Yorker union there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, when I, uh, joined the Tech Workers Coalition, my hope was to share some of the practical lessons that I learned in organizing a union at my workplace with my friends, peers, and colleagues in the tech industry. Uh, and around that time, you know, I thought we were, uh, you know, years, five, ten, you know, who knew, but, uh, you know, many, many years away from, uh, beginning to organize uh, you know, successful unions and certainly unions at companies like like Google. Um, and so I think that, you know, uh, for uh, this union to, you know, to be announced, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, really marks a new phase where, uh, you know, it marks a, you know, one plants a flag of the organized labor movement in the tech industry at, you know, big tech employers like Google. Um, and, you uh, and really marks, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a a shift from, uh, you know, these kind of initial networks of workplace activists in the tech industry, uh, you know, to really, uh, you know, announcing like, you know, we are, uh, we're going to organize, you know, we're fighting not just to, to protest or to, you know, raise awareness, but to really build powerful and effective majorities to check the power of big tech employers. Yeah. And one of the things I found was really interesting of the alphabet union, like you said, is the, what the Google workers are calling themselves. Mm-hmm. It um, It's composed of all workers, right? So it's from the coders to the drivers. And why do you think that's so important um, for, you know, to organize, to include all the workers in tech? And um, what are some of the challenges you think that um, come about in terms of bringing different layers of workers together? Sure. I think that one of the really, uh, I guess, um, like I, I kind of I described earlier, like I think that the most important thing that we need to be uh, looking forward to in the tech labor movement is not just, you know, organizing in general, but to really organize powerful and effective majorities, um, you know, in order to check the power of big tech employers uh, and, to, uh, and to really improve overall uh, you know, working conditions, but also to address the, the moral and ac- ethical bankruptcy of these uh, big tech employers. 
you know, tech companies uh, hold an enormous amount of power over our economy and over policymaking. Um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, just this week, as demonstrated by the sort of the Robin Hood, you know, GameStop, uh, AMC fiasco, you know, these, these companies can really uh, not only disrupt the economy, but really, uh, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, drastically affect people's lives. Um, and, you know, just kind of uh, piggybacking off of the conversation with the vaccine earlier, um, you know, tech, uh, tech companies like Amazon and Google have been, uh, you know, knocking at the door of policymakers and at the White House to say, like, hey, do you guys, you know, it seems like the vaccine rollout is, uh, isn't going so well. Is there anything we can do to help? Um, you know, but without the power of workers to balance out that inequality between the power of these employers and the power of workers uh, below, um, there's no there's no real guard against them, uh, you know, stopping uh, those employers from from weaseling in and, uh, and, and you know, making more profit off of the crisis that we're all facing. Um, I think that in order to really address that power, it can't just be one section of, of workers. It can't just be the white collar workers, the drivers, uh, you know, on one side and the drivers on the other or the temps vendors and contractors or gig economy workers on the other side. We really need everyone organized wall to wall in order to build the most effective, uh, you know, and strongest uh, amount of power and solidarity possible. Um, you know, but that doesn't come so easily that uh, I think one of the things that uh, that division and that inequality within the tech industry, uh, uh, you know, really creates isn't, uh, is, is it creates a lot of confusion for people, uh, you know, at those workplaces when they start to think about how to organize, uh, you know, not just because people uh, in these different, you know, layers of uh, uh, these different stratas um, don't, you know, talk to each other every day. It also creates, you know, just because of the Byzantine, Byzantine structure of, uh, of labor law in this country really creates a lot of confusion there in terms of, you know, how do we actually get everyone into the same organization? And that's one of the things that the Alphabet Workers Union, uh, you know, addresses in a really interesting way, uh, you know, not by necessarily uh, organizing to get NLRB, that's the National Labor Relations Board, uh, the federal authority that certifies and recognizes uh, uh, and kind of governs uh, labor law in the United States, you know, not necessarily campaigning for NLRB recognition, uh, you know, but to uh, but to organize a more novel type of union, uh, um, so that everyone can be uh, can be under the same organization, um, and, and not necessarily have to be subject to the same restrictions that labor law puts people into. Yeah, and just quickly going back to what you said earlier about the role of big tech, right? It seems like they're in everything, right? Um, and a recent example of that is um, Proposition 22 out in California, where Uber and Lyft spent millions, right, to convince the public that voting yes on Prop 22 would have helped gig workers. But in reality, it really just overturned a victory that gig workers had secured earlier on. Um, and again, this is just an example of big tech companies, you know, fighting against their employer, their employers, excuse me, their employees unionization efforts, right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how the tech workers work or the tactics that y'all use push up against these big ideas in tech? Because they seem to be very persuasive. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting is, um, yeah, I think that for a long time, like the, the tech industry and, and big tech companies, you know, like Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, um, have really for a long time been seen as, um, you know, sort of like 
uh, 21st century capitalism, sort of like star, ch- star children, you know, like uh, they bring so much convenience and so much, uh, you know, uh, to our everyday lives. And, you know, they do things so differently. They don't, they're not like the old dinosaurs like GM or, or AT&T or whatever, you know, they're run by, uh, they're not run by, you know, uh, you know, Scrooge, you know, uh, Scrooge or, or whatever they're run by, you know, hip, uh, people like Steve Jobs who wear, you know, black turtlenecks and, you know, think different. Um, but a lot of that good faith has really gone out the door over, uh, you know, over the last few years. Um, and I think especially since the, you know, presidency of, of Donald Trump, you know, um, and I think that like, um, uh, you know, so, so through that, I think uh, a lot of workers started to feel like on the one hand, a bit more responsibility, but also over that same period of time, you know, a lot more confidence uh, and being able to organize and actually address these issues, um, you know, with the growth of organizations like DSA and the, you know, uh, presidential uh, campaigns of Bernie Sanders and the election of people like AOC um, and Rashida Tlaib and others, I think people started to feel a lot more confident in being able to, you know, actually try to do something and to actually organize at work to uh, to try and, um, you know, uh, check that uh, the power inequality again between uh, between workers and employers. Um, organizations like the Tech Workers Coalition, which is the one that I volunteer with, um, you know, we, we, we don't organize, uh, you know, we're not a union. We don't organize to be a union. Uh, we don't necessarily organize, um, you know, within the workplace ourselves as an organization. In New York, our approach has really been trying to see ourselves as, uh, you know, trying to construct a bridge between uh, workers in the tech industry and the labor movement through education um, and through having conversations about uh, the challenges that we face at work, either in organizing or just in everyday life. I think that, uh, you know, one of the real challenges, and this isn't a challenge that's exclusive to workers in the tech industry. I think this is a challenge uh, for, you know, young workers, especially, but really everyone at work is, uh, you know, a sort of taken for granted belief that the issues that you face at your workplace are your own. Uh, that they belong to you and that they're not shared by other people. So people who say get turned over for a promotion, even though they've been busting their ass and hitting every mark or people that, uh, you know, find out that they're paid less than their peers or people that feel like, you know, this, you know, so can I say that on radio? Sorry, I forgot that I'm on radio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, just keep going. Just keep going. Cool. Um, you know, uh, you know, people who uh, suffer from having like a manager, you know, breathe down their neck all the time. Uh, people really think that like, that's just mine. Uh, that's something that happens to me and don't think that that maybe has something to do with everyone else. And so when they go to address those issues, they try and address it on an individual level. And I think that one of the things that's been really valuable for, uh, you know, in, in our group in the Tech Workers Coalition is having meetings and just creating space for people to talk uh, to each other and I and realize that like oh this issue that I have like you have that too you mean you mean like uh, your performance review process is completely opaque and no one knows how people actually get promoted or um, you know you're having a hard time finding a job uh, you know uh, for for no good reason and face all this discrimination the hiring process um, that happens to you too wow like we really do need to find a collective solution to this problem and we really do need to start organizing. And, um, and, you know, the Tech Workers Coalition also provides a space for people to learn how to start doing that 
uh, through holding, uh, you know, trainings with groups like Labor Notes and also putting people in contact with some of the unions that have started to invest in the organizing in the tech industry, like the Communication Workers of America and the OPIU, which is the Office Professionals Organization of Professional, I forget what, Office, Office and Professional Employees International Union. Yes, yes. Sometimes, you know, acronyms are difficult. I, I definitely feel that. Um, so we're actually going to take a quick music break and we come back. We actually have a caller on hold. So again, um, when we come back, we'll have some questions for Aaron and we'll be taking more calls. So pull out your phone and give us a call. Um, our number is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. Thanks. I'm superb, fly like a bird, 16 with the best curve, really checking on me, I'm hot, hot, but I'm cooler than your Jews, I'm a big shot, probably see me in the news, explore safari, you know where your girl be, if you wanna find me, baby you can call, call me, you ain't even gotta ask nobody about me, I'm certified on the internet, read about it, if you're looking for me, go and pull it up, cause I'm a celebrity, I know you done heard of me, you ain't even got a clue, but it's so true, they flashing the cameras with baby, Great. So that was Google Me by Tiana Taylor. Very relevant to our conversation today about, you know, Google workers unionizing. Uh, so you're tuned in to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5. Also streaming on WBAI.org. We're here with Aaron Petkoff, a software engineer and volunteer with the Tech Worker Coalition, who's speaking us tonight about uh, tech worker organizing. So you know, again, like I mentioned before, we have a few more questions and we want to hear from our listeners. You can give us a call at 212-209-2877 if you have a question for Aaron or thoughts about the tech industry. So we actually have one caller. Um, so, you know, ready for that call. Hello. Hey, caller, you're on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Please speak up so we can hear you. Okay, sure. Uh, listen, my name is Juan Cardenas. I'm calling from ICE Detention Center on Bergen County Jail. I don't know if it's going to be the right time to speak about the topic that your guys are doing right now, but I don't have so much Guys, time. can you hear him? Yes. Okay. Sorry, sorry, Juan. Sorry. Can you speak a little bit up? Sure. Yes. Okay, listen. Um, I'm really afraid what, about this call because um, I've been trying to, to, you know, to call you uh, guys from so many times uh, in the past because I saw I, I hear the your your station from from here inside. Okay, the thing is, what's ha- oh, what's my concern? What's happening here in Ice Detention? That uh, the COVID situation and um, uh, it's really really frustrating. What's happening is here inside, and also I got problems also with with myself. Um, I got a I got a, I got a really really a hard time doing a, a having a gold router 
and I've been uh, speaking, doing letters, letters and everything to the ICE officers, but nobody gives me attention. I'm, I'm really sick here. They leave me to die. I went to hospital like two weeks ago uh, with the officers in charge, but uh, they sent me back to my cell. Um, I tried to write to officers uh, uh, here, but nobody, uh, even the, the medical facility doesn't give me any attention, doesn't give me any pills, doesn't give me any medical uh, treatment. And I'm really desperate to, you know, to talk with someone, to tell uh, somebody uh, that here at uh, Bergen County Jail, ICE facility, it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Um, I'm really, I'm really sorry to hear that one. You know, what we're going to do is um, we can give you a hotline number to call. Um, and again, this really does relate to our conversation. And we'll get into about text role in terms of ICE enforcement and all of that. Thank you for calling. Um, so there's, um, I can give you the ho- a hotline number. You can call. Um, and again, we can, you know, we can um, repeat that number. So that number is 386 386- Two one four six four zero five. Again, that number is three eight six two one four six four zero five. And for our listeners, we've been covering some of the conditions, and we covered the hunger strike that was happening in Bergen Detention Center. Um, so again, if you want to know a little bit more about some of the conditions that Juan is facing, I definitely recommend folks check out our episode called uh, "Starving for Freedom: Life Inside New Jersey Detention Centers." So thank you again, Juan, for that. Thank you. On that note, um, what we're going to do is, um, Aaron, so that kind of leads to to our next question, right? Because, you know, Juan's talking about ICE um, and, you know, there have been tech workers who've protested not just workplace issues, but the political role, right? When it comes to tech working with the military and ICE, right? Which is Immigration Customs Enforcement. So why is, you know, why is that important and what has the pandemic, and you spoke about this a little bit earlier, um, what has the pandemic shown about the role tech could play for public good instead of just for private profit for billionaires? Sure. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the tech industry really commands an enormous amount of power uh, and authority, you know, in, uh, in, in, in our economy and policymaking uh, and through the development of technology of like really powerful technologies like uh, machine learning, facial recognition software and, um, and other things. They really enable the kind of, uh, you know, monstrous policies that, uh, you know, that really drew a lot of attention uh, especially under the you know Trump administration, uh, but aren't certainly exclusive to that administration. Uh, you know, as uh, as you all know on this show, and I'm sure that many of your listeners understand as well. Um, and uh, you know, over the course of uh, the last four years, a lot of tech workers started to um, you know become aware of uh, of the role that their companies and the software that they're developing uh, you know plays in. Uh, things like child separation, mass deportations, but also uh, police brutality through, uh, you know, not just contracts with, uh, you know, that are drawn between companies like Google and the Department of Defense, but also uh, contracts uh, between software developers and technology companies and police departments like the NYPD. Um, so, uh, a lot, you know, um, a lot of workers have started to organize at work to try and change those, you know, to either uh, eliminate those contracts uh, or to at least draw uh, attention and awareness um, to the company uh, to the role their companies are uh, are playing and and uh, enabling those things. Um, what this has led to, I think, is like really the formation of like strong initial networks of uh, workplace organizers, and have highlighted 
the role that, um, you know, the, the, the disturbing uh, and morally and ethically bankrupt role that tech employers play. Um, and, you know, uh, through protesting, through organizing at work, um, they've been able in some cases to affect those policies. So, uh, you know, one of the most high profile victories early on in the tech labor movement was uh, eliminating the contract between Google and the Department of Defense over, uh, you know, over um, something that's called Project Maven, uh, which was uh, to develop, uh, which was a project to develop uh, machine learning technology uh, that would be used in, um, I believe, in like drone uh, and drone manufacturing. So Google workers who organized around that were able to effectively eliminate uh, that contract. But that doesn't... Yeah, no, definitely. Sorry. Yeah, that really just shows the power of organizing, right? When we're talking about workplace organizing, because they weren't just organizing for better pay, right? They were actually trying to put pressure on their employer, and they end up succeeding in that. Uh, So we have two callers. Uh, So um, caller, welcome to Working Class Heroes. What is your name and where are you calling from? Yeah, hello. Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Welcome. What is your name and where are you calling from? Yeah, this is Derek calling from Harlem. So I want to get back to the the whole thing with the um, uh, pandemic and racism. I mean, you know, you really don't have to, I mean, you really have to be aware of this. You don't have to go back to Tuskegee, okay? Um, You know, there's one very prominent black academic who was killed in a hospital in New York. You know, I'm not supposed to know this, right? I know a friend of the family. Another uh, black academic was basically treated like dirt. Until, you know, the doctor basically realized that, quote, unquote, this nigger is an academic, so they had to tune it up. Um, In another state, uh, a black doctor saved the life of her black aunt who had COPD, and they were just letting her die. And a close family member of mine was misdiagnosed with bone cancer, and another black health worker said, well, look at the chart. Okay, and you know, and this is all was happening recently. And of course, we know about Joan Rivers, who was killed in a New York City hospital. All right, now this is all. This is not Tuskegee. This is all going on the last twenty years. Okay? Yeah, thank you, Derek. This is, this is, this is, but the second point has to do with um, with um, your show. Okay, and what you have done this evening. You hear you comment on Afro Americans. You have no Afro Americans. On your show, you have no um, black Afro-American working class people or union people. You know, I've been a union. I come from a union family, all right? You have none of them on your show. So you have someone else commenting, you know, on us and speaking for us, right? And you, But you do not allow Afro-Americans to speak for yourselves. You know, I don't know what your class origins are. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Derek, for that feedback. Um, We actually pride ourselves and having our guests and also our team be working class folks. Um, We we are a collective people of color um, and are, you know, that's something that we really pride ourselves on. But thank you again for sharing some of your thoughts. Um, So I'll go ahead and take the next caller. Um, Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. What is your name and where are you calling from? Hi, this is Ken from New Jersey. How are you? Hi, Ken from New Jersey, right? Yeah, Welcome. I just have a couple of quick comments and maybe questions in there. Uh, to the to the vaccines going to the um, wealthier nations. Uh, I know this is going to sound bad, and it ties into the medical field being dubious at best in most in most instances lately and in history. 
Uh, Google is now taking the point of IBM, is now taking the position of IBM, marking down all our uh, do's and don'ts with uh, marking the losers and winners of uh, the concentration camps we call work and prison camps and everything else they got going on, right? So Google's involved with that. That's the new IBM for the Nazis, right, or whatever you want to call them. The thing is that um, with the vaccines, you think they're targeting these vaccines. Let's say these vaccines were malicious because you're taking, you're telling your body to make a protein that mimics a vaccine, that mimics a virus. So it's, you know, very easy to, to you know, like think even a layman would say, hey, if my body's producing something my body wants to attack, won't that cause an autoimmune response, giving me HIV or worse? Which many yeah. Have, right, right, so that's the so the other question with Google is mm-hmm. if these people are waking up now, realizing that they're giving power to their bosses at the scale that they are, and these are the most supposedly intelligent people we have that are doing this uh, software, whatever you want to call it. How long until AI makes them mute as well, and all we have left is robots and billionaires? Okay. Well, thank you, Ken. Sorry, we, we, we are already short on time. Thank you for giving us a call. Um, I guess, Aaron, did you want to speak to that? That's basically just in terms of like people, um, like, you know, people's experience waking up to what's happening in terms of like their employer, like Google, for example. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point. I think that, um, you know, uh, I guess the, one of the things that the caller mentioned at the end was, uh, you know, with the sort of rapid development of technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence, you know, uh, you know, having that technology replace workers, um, you know, in other sectors of the economy, uh, you know, how long will it be until, uh, you know, people like myself, software developers and other people in tech uh, become replaced by the same technology? And, um, you know, it's actually uh, kind of interesting that um, this has actually been uh, an anxiety of people in this field going as far back as the 1970s and 1980s when uh, the software industry started, uh, you know, first working on artificial intelligence. And that, um, that certainly hasn't happened, uh, hasn't happened yet. But the fact that that anxiety has been present uh, for so long is really kind of uh, compelling because it shows that despite, uh, you know, the relative uh, privilege or uh, status, you know, through high salaries or high, you know, uh, at least immediately high job security. People, uh, you know, uh, people in this field uh, still have very familiar uh, concerns that any uh, any worker, uh, you know, has about um, job security and how long can they really rely on this uh, on, on their job. And that points to uh, you know the need for workers to organize and, and and fight to change those conditions. Yeah, that's a very powerful point to end on, Sally. That's all the time we have for tonight. Did you want to, I guess, um, you know, share some of the like the Twitter handle for the uh, Tech Worker Coalition or how people can find out more about it before we close? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Tech Worker uh, Tech Worker Co. Um, we also have a website uh, Tech Worker uh, Tech Worker I would also encourage people to look into some of the unions that have been organizing around this. Uh, that's CWA, uh, Communication Workers of America. Uh, they have an initiative called Code, the Committee to Organize Digital Employees. And also the OPEIU, uh, who've uh, launched a similar initiative called the Tech Workers Union Local 1010. Great. Thank you again, Aaron, for being with us tonight. Um, thanks also to Kadisha and Mel for hosting tonight's show, as well as Yanni, Lupita, Danny, and Julian for all the behind-the-scenes work, and of course, our super producer, Giovanni. 
Next week, we're going to be catching up with Prakash Chairman, who was recently freed from Rikers. Catch our previous coverage of his case and our two-part special on our website, workingclassheroes.org. Um, and make sure to tune in on Saturday, February 6th at 6 p.m. as we continue to cover his case. Until then, New York, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, in solidarity. Travel the road determined, had the nerve to burn the burdens, uh. I couldn't hold my tongue for certain, turn to gold. I spun my purpose round like Mary Gold. My weary soul is met in person, perfect. Steep and simmer down, my boiling blood is undeserving. I kept a sliver shroud, but now my blessed home. It isn't what I found, it's how I found it all alone. 150 grand, a thousand sessions on the gold, gold. Life is what you make it, so make it worth it. Make it past the year. I'll slow my race and so I'll show you purpose. Like I don't wanna disappear. My baby gon' wake me out my sleep. I hope the times I cried and held my beard as if I couldn't hear a sound. A shriek a shout about the shit. I gotta grow with it, go with it. Beneath the streets of bones, I have to speak about it. Vain is not the culprit. On the train, floating high as hell, dozing. Might as well just close my eyes, fear is there approaching, self-loather in them navy loafers, slow poking, iron sword engraved, me nombre poderoso.